Hello and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And we are broadcasting, as always, from two different corners of the country. I am in... Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I am out in Bennington, Vermont. But though they may have taken very different forms, one thing that our respective locations have in common is that they were the sites of demonstrations in support of the value of black lives. There were obviously demonstrations that made national news out by where Connor was, and he was very close to them and involved with all of that. But even here in Bennington, Vermont, a group of about 50 people, the youngest and most diverse crowd I have ever seen assembled here, got together outside of the Bennington police station and held beautiful signs that said things like Black Lives Matter here too, which was a really powerful indication to me because this happened a little while ago and it was one of the signs to me that this was really a nationwide movement about policing because there has not been an incident here in Bennington. There was a report that came out a little while ago about um, racial disparities in treatment by the Bennington police, but that did not spark public action. And this protest did not seem connected to that in any way. This was a group of people coming together, making a statement about police, even here in, in rural-ish Vermont. Yeah, it's been interesting that it's been so intense in Minneapolis that I even though it was kind of the catalyst for a lot of the nationwide stuff, I feel like I'm usually much more tuned into where things are happening elsewhere. But I've I've been joking that um, mostly I'm aware of my my block. Um, (laughs) That's my local news is uh, what's happening on my block. Yeah, because I, as we all know, well, bears repeating, forever but um what was it like three weeks ago i think maybe monday may 25th would be my guess um george floyd was horrifically murdered um about probably a mile from where i live and there were pretty immediate protests the next day and some riots some looting some arson a lot of a lot of rage and anger and also a lot of hope anyway the the kind of the street that a lot of the protests were on is like we live just off that street um so it's been our neighborhood and community that has you know been around and also participating in a lot of the things that have been going on Anyway, we we can talk more about that later, but you know, one thing that's been one thing that's really beautiful and we'll uh share this is the poem that we're talking about today is a wonderful poem um by a local Minneapolis poet and um writer uh and novelist, I believe, Janata Petrus, and the poem is called Could We Please Give the Police Departments to the grandmothers. And there is a puppet theater that is on the corner of my block. And after a few days of the protests, 
you know, all the stores and places kind of boarded up and things like that. But they boarded up with like kind of black, like blackboard-ish type material and wrote this poem like along the walls of the theater. And it was called like a, a vision poem. And it was then read at uh, there on Sunday, this past Sunday, in Powderhorn Park, which is also where uh, me and Sarita take uh, our new little uh, doggo to go poop and uh, roll around and sneeze in the dandelions, <laughs> was where the event was held. And uh, it's where the, the city council sort of at the pressure and urging of the grassroots organizations, namely uh, the Black Visions Collective and Reclaim the Block, uh, to commit formally to ending the uh, Minneapolis Police Department, which was pretty incredible to um, behold. And kind of closing out that event, Janata Petrus came up and read this poem. And it just was, yeah, it was a it was very beautiful and powerful for a lot of reasons that we shall discuss. But I thought it would be one that would be great to have on the podcast. Without further ado, could we please give the police departments to the grandmothers by Janata Petrus. Give them the salaries and the pensions and the city vehicles, but make them a fleet of vintage Corvettes Jaguars and Cadillacs with white leather interior, diamond in the back, sunroof top, and digging the scene with the gangster lean. Let the cars be badass. You would hear the old school jams like Patti LaBelle, Stevie Wonder, Anita Baker, and Al Green. You would hear Sweet Honey in the Rock harmonizing on We Who Believe in Freedom Will Not Rest bumping out the speakers, and they got the booming system. If you up to mischief, they will pick you up swiftly in their sweet ride and look at you until you catch shame and look down at your lap. She asks you if you are hungry, and you say yes, and of course you are. She got a crown of dreadlocks, and on the dashboard you see brown faces like yours, Shea buttered and loved up. And there are no precincts, just love temples that got spaces to meditate and eat delicious food. Mangoes, blueberries, nectarines, cornbread, peas and rice, fried plantain, foo-foo, yams, greens, okra, pecan pie, salad, and lemonade things that make your mouth water and soul arrive. All the hungry bellies know warmth. All the children expect love. The grandmas help you with homework, practice yoga with you, and teach you how to make jambalaya and coconut cake from scratch. When you're sleepy, she will start humming and rub your back while you drift off a song that she used to have the record of when she was your age. She remembers how it felt to be you and be young and not know the world that good. Grandma 
is a sacred child herself who just circled the sun enough times into the ripeness of her cronehood. She wants your life to be sweeter. When you are wild and out because your heart is broke or you don't have what you need, the grandmas take your hand and lead you to their gardens. You can lay down amongst the flowers. Her grasses, roses, dahlias, irises, lilies, collards, kale, eggplants, blackberries. She wants you to know that you are safe and protected, universal, limitless, sacred, sensual, divine, and free. Grandma is the original warrior, wild since birth, comfortable and loving fiercely. She has fought so that you don't have to, not in the same ways at least. So give the police departments to the grandmas. They are fearless, classy, and actualized, blossomed from love. They wear what they want and say what they please. Believe that. There wouldn't be noise citations when the grandmas ride through our streets, blasting Stevie Wonder, Nina Simone, Marvin Gaye, Alice Coltrane, Jimi Hendrix, KRS-One, all that good music. The kid's gonna hula hoop to it and sell her lemonade made from heirloom pink lemons and maple syrup. The car is solar powered and carbon footprintless. The grandmas design the technology themselves. At night, they park the cars in a circle so all can sit in them with the sunroofs down and look at the stars, talk about astrological signs, what to plant tomorrow based on the moon's mood, and help you memorize Audre Lorde and James Baldwin quotes. She always looks you in the eye and acknowledges the light in you with no hesitation or fear. And grandma loves you fiercely forever. She sees the pain in our bravado, the confusion in our anger, the depth behind our coldness. Grandma know what oppression has done to our souls and is gonna change it one love temple at a time. She has no fear. <laughs> wow. It's so good. It's incredible. In like so many different specific ways and also as an overall piece that is, it's one of the longer poems that we've done, probably the longest, but yeah. I feel like the, the heft of it is so necessary. I really appreciate that about it. Yeah, me too. I know it's, <laughs> I don't even know. I, it gives me so many thoughts. Um, I don't know where to start exactly, but saying kind of what, what you were getting at, like the reason why it kind of like stuck with me so much and like I pass by the, the poem on the walls, like whenever I go out for a walk or whatever. And to me, it's like, it's both this, it captures both something like so necessary in both like the current material political moment and the demands being made 
and also speaks to like like the transcendent kind of power of poetry and the imagination i think you know one thing to me that's kind of like i've been thinking about and i think a lot of people have been thinking about is you know there's probably been more consensus now around the country than there has ever been at least in my memory that the police are a huge problem and that <laughs> there's at least a lot of bad apples at the very least and a growing remembering of the real phrase which is that yeah. a bad apple spoils the bunch which is also how fruit works if you have one old banana that sucks a whole bunch it's going to make all the other bananas go bad a lot faster. And literally anyone who has ever been part of a group or worked at a job knows that that is absolutely how jobs work. And it is mind-blowing that you cannot apply that to the profession of policing. But yes, I concur with you wholeheartedly. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. There was this... Uh, one of my friends sent me this video of like there was a the protest I don't know what city it was exactly but the maybe the sheriff or some kind of head police person was like trying to say something and everyone like quieted down and he was like just because you've had one bad McDonald's burger doesn't mean that McDonald's is bad <laughs> Anyway, and you hear a voice from the crowd who says, what the fuck does that mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, I've seen the video. Yeah, yeah. Um, John Cox, wherever you are, thanks for sending that. Ah, uh, John. Uh, um, much love. Love you, John. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, at the very minimum, yeah, I know. the The fact, it is funny when someone is like, the phrase that everyone's been using means exactly the opposite of how people are saying it. But at any rate, I feel like there's people who, you know, police chiefs around the country fairly rapidly after the aftermath of George Floyd's murder were like, that was not like appropriate police behavior or whatever. Sean Hannity, I mean, he's since said a number of crazy things, but like was criticizing the police, which is insane. So it, it, you know, the negative message and negative, I guess, in sort of both ways has like really spread in a way that it hasn't before. And that seems sort of abundantly clear. And I think that's obviously, you know, I mean, there's a number of reasons why. I mean, the, the sheer awfulness and appallingness of what Chauvin did is just so heinous. But also, you know, it's clear that all of the activism and organizing that's happened, you know, at least since Trayvon Martin was killed, and certainly since uh, Michael Brown was murdered, has kind of like been building this consciousness and there's many other factors, but... Yeah, I mean, that's such an important part of it. And you see that in the civil rights movement. There's like the Brown v. Board of Ed decision in 54 
Emmett Till is murdered in 1955. And then it's not until Bull Connor turns the fire hoses and dogs on protesters that you really get the broader national sort of hearts and minds start to move on the issue in a broader way. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that white people have to be brought along to make change, no matter how messed up that is. Um, but it's something else that you're seeing here. And I, there's a, a young tennis player named Coco Goff, who many people may have sort of had her poke up on their radar because she's this like young, charismatic, super talented player. And she kind of broke through last summer. And it was one of these stories that kind of gets outside the sporting world. But she was at a protest and she was talking at it and she's young. And so she's saying, I remember Trayvon Martin being killed when I was eight and I'm here and I'm 16 and I'm still talking about this. Like that's half her life. There's a whole generation of people who have grown up in the contemporary environment and conversation around policing where these videos show up day after day after day. And of course, George Floyd's name is the one that has gotten the most attention recently. And there's a lot of perfectly excellent reasons for that. It's horrific. And, but the, the list goes on and on and on. And it's like the accumulated weight of those names and the activism that's been going on for years. Um, and just the pervasive nationwide nature of the clear problem. As I think we've mentioned on the podcast before, like the first six episodes of Close Talking were recorded in a house that was barely a block and a half from where Eric Garner was choked to death. And you have the, you know, union officials at the NYPD coming out and saying, what happened to George Floyd was despicable and terrible and it doesn't happen here and we don't do that. Like it happened there before George Floyd. Eric Garner was saying, I can't breathe and being choked to death. I like we walked past the spot where that happened on that day when we recorded those episodes, yeah. both to and from the ferry on Staten Island. Like it is happening everywhere. It is part of all of our lives and it is finally getting attention. No, I mean, you're so right. I mean, I, I think it's like the police kill approximately a thousand people every year, which is like insane to me. Yeah. I, I think like, one thing that this kind of poem sort of the reason why it spoke to me so much is, you know, like even though the problem has become clear and also like understood on a scale that it hasn't before the kind of solution and the kind of like the positive sort of alternatives are, are, you know, while there are many people who have, you know, been thinking critically about alternatives to the police and, you know, the, the criminal quote unquote justice system for decades, um, in terms of like a mass consciousness, you know, like, I feel like this is the, I had heard like prison abolition talked about on a kind of larger scale but the idea of prison abolition in terms of like a mainstream discourse this is like the first time that i've ever seen it being kind of like talked about um if you're interested in prison abolition angela davis's our prisons obsolete check it out it's a short read that's a pretty good primer on 
more progressive thinking on on prisons mm. i have been meaning to read that for so long um there's also a wonderful profile and i need to read her book but ruth wilson gilmore is like another scholar on the carceral state i think her her sort of like biggest book is called golden gulag and she actually has an interesting counterpoint to Michelle Alexander wrote uh, The New Jim Crow, which I highly recommend, and it's a wonderful book. And that's kind of like, in terms of like the national consciousness of mass incarceration, that book has been like foundational in terms of like providing really concrete scholarship and evidence and, and also like contextualizing the rise of mass incarceration. But without going too deep into it, Gilmore sort of focuses on a different aspect of incarceration and more with like, like Alexander's focus was primarily on the war on drugs and the federal prison system and basically nonviolent crimes and kind of like the thrust of, of one of her arguments, um, which then sort of, you can see how in, you know, when politicians discuss it is like, decriminalizing certain drug offenses like commuting you know like nonviolent offenders like nonviolent offenders and getting those people out of the prison system which obviously should be done but Gilmore sort of focuses more on violent quote-unquote violent criminals and how they actually do make up a fairly substantial part of state and sort of county prisons, I think, so aren't sort of like accounted for in the new Jim Crow. And that if we really want to take prison abolition seriously, one, I think one of her critiques would be like, if we were to accept the fullness of like Alexander's argument, that like, we need to stop criminalizing nonviolent offenses, and they should all be gone from prison. That's great, except that it sort of further justifies the incarceration of violent criminals, which like sort of makes its existence more permanent, I guess. And obviously she doesn't suggest doing nothing about people who have sort of committed violent acts, but is more interested in like something like I think like restorative justice or a more like community account- accountability where the person who has committed the offenses, like the, the purpose allegedly of prison is to rehabilitate the quote unquote criminal, which like if you look at recidivism or, you know, like people who go back to prison after being in prison, it's like insanely high and the conditions of prisons are appalling in any number of ways. Anyway, to me, it was very interesting to me to think about that. Um, And I do recommend both the, there's a great profile of Ruth Wilson Gilmore and we'll, we'll definitely link to that because I think it's, it's, it's very thought provoking. Um, You did said something that I was definitely thinking about when I was reading this, which is like, who do you give other parts of like, the social infrastructure too. So you give the police departments to the grandmothers. Love that. 
that's incredible. And I love how it's described and I love everything about what this poem does, but I'm part of me is like eager for this poem to be a series. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, give the prisons to the aunts and uncles. What does that look like? You know, like taking these restrictive and, you know, in some arenas of society, disgustingly fetishized aspects of like something that should be part of the community and a community should feel like a family an extended family for sure but like the idea of everybody living together should be a cooperative project built on care and respect and that is so easily lost once things are institutionalized and what i love about this poem is and you touched on this a little bit is just the imaginative quality of it it dares to imagine something different and in some ways what i find fascinating about that is that it is imagining something far beyond the present but in doing so is in many ways just returning to the fundamentals why do we want a police department what is the point of public safety it's to give you what a badass grandma can give you a sen- an overwhelming sense of security and assurance and guidance in a way that you can't get from your parents because that's a specific kind of relationship. Your grandmother can meet you. I mean, this is like talking in idealized terms and like the sort of, you know, concept of grandmother, not going off, off of like individual experiences, but like theoretically your grandmother can be that judgment free family member who you can go to and it's not a universal experience but i know a lot of people report that where like i couldn't talk to my mom and dad about this but i could talk to my grandma about it or there's like another family member or friend who fills that position for you you know and i think that that's such a foundational idea of what we want public safety to be about there's this amazing there's a peanuts cartoon where the kids are reflecting on growing up and one of them talks about the feeling that you have when you're asleep in the backseat of the car and your parents are driving you home and that at some point when you grow up you lose that and i feel like that's a feeling that this poem is getting at Mm. which ideally if you live in a community that's taking care of you you can get a small piece of that feeling back either walking down the street and talking to people or when you lie down at night and you see your neighbor turn off their light out the window or like whatever. But it's like that feeling of being cared for collectively or communally or having somebody there. Like that's what is missing (laughs) across the country. And it's something that most people don't dare to imagine as a version of policing. And I feel like that's the other value particularly in poetry, kind of in language generally, but especially in poetry, which is that it is an imaginative form. It dares to go beyond the immediate and look at what could be, what might be, what should be. Um, And that is something that is so often lost in the, you know, stodgy realms of municipal government or even in analyses of like the police department or the carceral state. Like you can have policy papers you can have analyses and you can have academic works but at some point you need poetry and art to actually provide you an idea of what that future might look like yeah no i think that's really well said i really like that a lot yeah to me like one of the 
the questions that I've seen a lot, and it's something that I've, you know, had myself from time to time is like, okay, we get the problem. We get the police are a problem. You know, we understand that that's clear, but like abolish the police sounds like on first glance, it's like, okay, you're just going to get rid of the police. And then it's like, well, then what, what are we going to be left with kind of thing? And part of the, the challenge, I think right now that I think this poem does such a good job addressing. And I think you, you spoke about, especially with regards to the imagination is that because like, you know, for, you know, the, the Minneapolis police department has been around for 150 years. I think the very first police department might've been the London police department or something in like the 1820s, at least. I mean, there have been sort of informal forms of law enforcement for a long time, but the quote unquote modern police force, which to all of us alive is forever, but is also incredibly young. And I think we, because we haven't lived in a society, you know, um, without the police department, for some of us, it's incredibly difficult to imagine what a society would look like with something else in its place. And also the, there is in some ways like not one, you know, golden answer that's like been sitting there the whole time. It's like, oh, we'll just move all the money from the police to this one place and then that'll do all the work and then it'll be fine. It's like, well, actually, you know, right now the police are responding horribly to many number of things, including, you know, like um, addiction issues or substance use issues, domestic violence issues, like homelessness issues, you know, like school disciplinary issues and all of those kind of things that right now are have been strangely consolidated into the police officer's purview, you know, like could be handled by any number of sort of workers or organizations. And it, you know, obviously like many of them already exist, you know, there are so many crisis organizations that handle you know, substance use or domestic violence issues. And like we have one of the few, um, my um, spouse Sarita used to work at the Greater Minneapolis Crisis Nursery where if you're in crisis, you can drop your kids off for three days and like do what you need to do and your kids will be cared for and like, a, you know, and then there's like, workers there who will try to help the parents, you know, like manage their crisis. And, you know, <laughs> part of it is sort of simply, well, the Minneapolis Police Department is currently 30% of the city budget. Maybe it should not be 30% because that's insane. And these nonprofits who are doing amazing work and are constantly underfunded and overworked should just get a lot of money and like it will be amazing 
And, you know, the other thing that I've heard time and time again from different activists and, you know, researchers and writers on the topic is that, like, crime, you know, isn't random. And this is from, there's a great, like, uh, it's called, like, MPD 150, which was, it's like a 150-year performance review of the police department here. And... I know. I love that they call it a performance review because it's it's the tone is not uh, like your normal work performance review where it's like, here's a few uh, strengths of yours and here's some areas of improvement. The, ti- the title of it, which they say this is the title and also the conclusion, enough is enough. <laughs> um, and I was just reading through it today and it's pretty harrowing account of the the early days of the police department was a bunch of untrained often drunk people who were just breaking uh strikers and union union busting yeah it's either slave patrols or union busting in the origins of contemporary policing it's like the pinkertons and the slave patrol it's absolutely repulsive yep yep yeah, Minnesota being a great northern state did not require the slave patrol, and so it just was needed to bust unions. <laughs> yeah, which is pretty heinous, and it, you know, just time and time again was, you know, on the side of white supremacy, and also was incredibly misogynist and incredibly homophobic, and. You know, anyway, but the report also kind of outlines, like, (laughs) after (laughs) taking you through the grand tour of uh, all of the MPD's accomplishments over the years, you know, one thing that that stuck out with me is, is, which, which I think has been said many times, but crime isn't random, and, like, the conditions that people face, like poverty and disenfranchisement and also of course police harassment and violence contribute to crime the point being just like one part of it is like reallocating resources to sort of non-violent and supportive organizations that are located within the communities like i think it's over 90 percent of minneapolis police police officers don't live in minneapolis which is a bad start. And so they just, they literally don't know anybody. And then of course, just because of all these racist systems, it's like, it gets compounded. And then another part is like doing kind of investment in communities and like providing housing to people experiencing homelessness, not criminalizing homelessness like those are those are things that like are more like root issues that we could invest in that would sort of like remove the conditions that help create the crises like we will still need organizations to respond to the crises but one alternative to policing is just like not sort of force forcing certain communities to be totally deprived of basic needs, which is like what Minneapolis and places around the country does. You know, it's it's just like Sarita was also telling me this, but Minnesota is such an interesting state because 
in so many respects, you know, it's this kind of progressive haven. It's very liberal in a lot of ways. And Minneapolis is like very blue and has a lot of, you know, like social funding and infrastructure that you really can't find in a lot of other places. Like the crisis nursery, for example, is like one of eight in the country or something like that. I mean, it's, but at the same time, the racial disparities in Minnesota are basically among, if not the biggest in the country uh, in terms of whatever metric you want. And there's just like a whole host of, you know, like um, from like racist housing laws and things to just like create this tale of two cities. Um, one, just you, you, <laughs> you basically said it, but like, I, I think to me, like one thing that was so powerful about the poem and also powerful about the, that's what the, the organizers here understand. And I think what a lot of other people understand is that this is not simply just to fund the police and then like what happens will happen. It's like, we're reinvesting and like, this is a positive kind of like imagining of a better future and like and community is such like the I think like the bedrock of it and that's what this poem like I love the like the line there will be no precincts only love temples it's just like such a beautiful idea and it it just it makes me I'm referencing Sarita again but <laughs> she she's getting her uh her degree in social work and she was working in a a school uh last year and one of the kind of principles of i think what she, what she would call kind of like trauma informed care and like trauma informed education is that if you have a student or a kid who has like big behaviors like they're yelling in class or they're throwing things or they're getting in fights. The correct response is not punishment. What those behaviors are telling you is like, I need, my needs aren't being met and I need my needs to be met. And like some students have found that the only way that they can get attention to get their needs met is to act out basically. And you know, like to me, like the no precincts, but love temples is like such an encapsulation of instead of punishing, like the the word that she uses in the poem, like up to mischief or something, uh, instead of sending you to the precinct and locking you up and making you sit in a cell and treating you like dirt, we give you, we send you to the love temple and we like sit with you and we like figure out what you need and we feed you mangoes and blueberries and like soul food. And we talk to you and we listen to you and we nurture you. And like, to me that that's like what this, that's like what I'm hearing this like movement for police abolition is about is like, it's about, trying to first tear down the harmful structures that are causing much more harm than good, um, but also like making space for 
like nurturing and restorative and like loving spaces. And yeah, I just, I, I find that just like such a, a beautiful part of the poem. And it's also been true in my experience. I mean, it's been so interesting these past three weeks because, you know, as I had said, we were very close to a lot of the protests and, you know, a lot of the, the small, I mean, I don't really care about the target of the precinct. They can go burn, but a lot of the, you know, like Latinx owned stores and black owned stores were also damaged and things like that. And then, you know, there were, it's, it's such a complicated thing, but there were white supremacists who came to the city and were also doing some of the, um, I'm, I'm like wary of this because it seems like it's, it's all of it. The, the story is all of it. You know, it's like, it's not just that only like that black people were only protesting peacefully. And then there were these outside white agitators who were like burning shit up and ruining the cause. It's like there were peaceful black protesters and there were also like incredibly angry black people who, you know, destruction was like, how the you know the riots are the voice of the unheard and that's like also important and then there were also (laughs) some white like nazi people who were doing crazy shit and you know i my neighborhood is is you know predominantly people of color and so we learned at some point that we thought the destruction was going to kind of like spill over into the residential neighborhoods and so we had to form these like neighborhood watches where we were on the lookout for white guys in trucks with like white power symbols and stuff. Anyway, it was at times very harrowing, but it was also a moment of like, like I now really know a lot of the people on my block and it was like, not the circumstance you want to like be a bonding experience, but it was also a time when we kind of showed to ourselves that alternative forms of keeping people safe are possible and we were doing it, you know? And like, at the same time that we were fearing white supremacists, we were also fearing the National Guard, which were shooting crazy bullets at people on their porches and stuff. And so, I don't know, it was just like, the community were the people like watching out on the block and they were the ones, you know, getting people food. People commandeered this hotel near us that is like was housing 200 people who didn't have homes. It's now seems to be getting to be a complicated situation. But it was just this, I don't know, it was this kind of like speaking from experience I hadn't really felt like part of an alternative sort of community. And that's part of my own privilege, I think, because the the other thing too, that has been very powerful for me to, to hear about and read about is like, obviously for, you know, black communities and native communities and, you know, other communities of color, police have never been the way that they feel safe and have always been the harmful presence. And so 
those communities have always had other ways of keeping each other safe as best they can and providing that support. So for, for them, it's not this crazy idea. It's like, yeah, we have those. We'd like if the people who are doing the work could get paid for it instead of just doing it for free. And so it's, it's really the kind of, anyway, as always, the, uh, the whiteies are the last to wake up and I am <laughs> among them for sure. But I, I do think one of the things I love so much about this poem is like, it's, it's so sensual and imaginative and like hopeful and full of love. And like, I don't know, it just like, it's not crazy. It's just like, wow, that would be wonderful. And like, why isn't that the case already? <laughs> it does make it seem like a natural progression. That's part of what's really cool about it is it's wildly imaginative in terms of something that's so different from what is now, but it also does it in such a way that makes you think like, oh yeah, of course that's how it should be. No brainer. Um, <laughs> and I feel like part of what you're describing is like when, when a community has taken that kind of accountability for safety upon itself, those who act outside of that agreement are then in such a different position than if there's this like essentially in many cases occupying outside force of the police that are doing law enforcement. And I really like the part that you pulled out about the love temples, but the part that really struck me is right before that, where it talks about looking at you until you catch shame and look down at your lap. And I feel like that's the alchemy that happens when you have a community that is like sort of self-sufficient for its safety is that when someone is acting outside of that, it becomes this internal recognition of wrongdoing that is not just being imposed from outside, but it can become something where you actually feel like, oh my God, why have I done this to the, the place that I care about and that has cared about me? Uh, it's a very different feeling. And that is so clearly what can happen when you disappoint a valued family member, especially like a sweet grandma um, or a badass grandma, badass and sweet are not mutually exclusive. I just remember this is like a dumb, a super dumb thing, but it stuck out. It's the first thing I thought of when I read that, which is that there was this kid uh, at my college who super drunk wandered into another student's room and peed all over their stuff and then fell asleep in their bed. Damn. So at Marlboro, you would get taken to community court. And I was talking to, I was on community court at the time and had to recuse myself because I was the one who like dealt with the situation as an RA. And I was talking to one of the professors about it because like everybody knew what had happened because it was Marlboro and it was tiny. Um, <laughs> and I was lamenting that there wasn't going to be more done for this kid who had like done something pretty egregious and like kind of traumatized this freshman a little bit. And I felt really bad for this for this kid who got his stuff all peed on and then had like an incoherently drunk person writhing in his bed for a while oh, no. and the professor wise as he was was just like yeah but this guy's the guy who had peed on the stuff and gone to the bed like he has to go and he has to talk about what he did to gloria and gloria was this literature professor super intense but like the sweetest old lady like five foot tall, you know, hair in a bun English professor. And like, you know, the deep, intense 
like how bad it must feel to have to sit in a room with her and be like, I don't remember this happening, but I am told that I walked into so-and-so's room, I peed on their laundry pile, and then I got in their bed. <laughs> like, you catch shame. Yeah. It's a very specific kind of thing. And I feel like that is one of the moments in this poem. There's several of them, and I think the Love Temples is another one where you get this, like, again, it's an imaginative rendering of such a core philosophical value to what you would want community accountability to look like you would want anyone who you know gets up to mischief in your community as the poem states it to like the form of accountability is that they you know you knock down somebody's fence and the person walks out and they're like hey i built that it took me three weeks it cost a lot of money why why did you do that like i know you were angry but why and then you catch shame and maybe you help them build it back up or you pay for yeah. the repairs or something. But like that vision is contained in that description so beautifully and so powerfully. And there are several other moments in the poem where, where that comes through. No, that's really true. Um, that's such a good point. And it, it's interesting to like, I feel like in certain, I, I don't know, there, there's been certain moments of like justice that people make happen kind of like, within the larger system that's ultimately not providing it. Like I remember reading about, um, God, that horrible um, gymnastics coach. Larry Nasser. Yeah. Don't want to get into the details of it. Horrible, horrible person. But the judge at the case basically had him sit in the courtroom and any of the survivors that he had abused could come to the courtroom and tell him directly anything that they wanted and basically talk about how what he did, how it impacted them. And at some point, of course, he was like, please, can we stop this? (laughs) Um, There's this really uh, incredible moment. And the judge, I think, is the one who has talked about this in a subsequent documentary done about it but he wanted to give an apology and she allowed him to do it and i forget if it is that he was whatever he was doing he was like either turning away from them while he was doing it or moving away from the microphone like he had found a way to not say what he was saying into the microphone so that he was like giving his apology but no one could hear it and she eventually like told him that he had to actually like do it if he was going to do it yeah even though that's not like in community, the power of it comes in the the relation between the two people or the larger group. It's like the power of it is like the person who did the wrong, the person who was wronged, the other people involved like are all in a in a moment like confronting it in some way. And like what is so kind of like the current justice system and police system does everything possible to prevent that from happening in any way. It's like someone did something bad. Okay. Well, they're just taken away immediately. They're just sequestered, probably hurt by some random stranger who is a police officer 
and like you know then there's the officious proceedings of the court or something if that ever happens and then of course the the prison is usually in the most remote place possible and like i don't know it's just like the degrees of alienation that this the system creates from not just the person who did the the crime or the the misdeed but just everybody involved i don't know one thing that i find really helpful about poetry and about this poem is sometimes like people like have these uh, this is what we want policy wise like defund the police or you know um we want something and sometimes it's something i've never thought of before and like sounds totally like out there to me and i'm like oh i no way can't do that um because i just can't imagine it kind of thing and it's like a totally we i'm sure common response but totally weird because like the stakes of me being open to the idea are pretty low. Like, just like, just think about it, I guess. Um, and <laughs> for me, like this poem and like the space that I've tried to give myself, like after, I don't know, all of this is like really like imagining both like coming to terms with like, what is the world that I'm living in? And like, what, do I want the world to be? And like, what are the police doing to create or prevent these certain worlds from happening? And the more I've just sort of sat with that kind of idea, it's just become, um, I mean, you know, I personally support, like I'm so excited about the city council's commitment and I'm like fully on board and like, I'm ecstatic by the idea, but even if I wasn't like, it would be clear to me that a world that I would not, that I would want to live in would not have the police in them as they exist. And I don't know if a month ago I would have like necessarily felt strongly about that mm. idea which is obviously a huge reflection of like my privilege as a, as a white person um, and having like the only negative experiences I've had with the police are when I've been with friends who are of color. But, but I think like, I don't know, poetry is helpful for giving me that space to be like, okay, forget about like any of the immediate changes that could be happening in politics or whatever like just think about what world do you want and like the world in this poem is like a pretty good world and i like that world i think that's so well said and i think it is such a testament to what poetry is like really good at yeah i mean part of what's great about this poem is that it does all that imaginative work and it, it's a poem that grows out of painful circumstances, but is like fundamentally infused with joy at the possibility of this world. The place of poetry is often so derided in like, quote unquote, serious conversations 
about like change or like, yeah, maybe poetry is good for helping you feel better about something, but then we have to get down to the real work. And I mean, obviously this is a poetry analysis podcast. Like we're a little biased on the cause of poetry or whatever, (laughs) but fundamentally like language is so important and poetry and what it does with language as a means of possibility is so important. Like we see all the ways that everyday language can perpetuate harmful systems. It is lack of imagination that leads to dozens of headlines about riots and like two news organizations that I can think of that are major like Slate and The Guardian were willing to have headlines. Like I think the Slate headline was police erupt in violence nationwide. And I believe that The Guardian, I believe was protests about police brutality are met with wave of police brutality across the United States. Sounds right. And these are just like basic descriptions, but it is such a fundamental reframing for many people about what's going on. Um, And the Columbia Journalism Review did a whole article about how the words used to describe the actions of police actually serve to mask what's happening. Their violence is hidden under the passive voice and hidden under neutral terms like engage, deploy, like these very militaristic terms that are kind of anodyne, whereas all the protesters like hurl bricks and throw rocks and right. like very active, violent terminology is used. And that pervasive language creates a perception of the present. And part of what language can do and part of what poetry can do is imagine a future as well. And it can create the space for that. And I think that like the political, you know, truism or adage that you campaign in poetry and govern in prose gets exactly at that. It's the Mm. campaign of promises that may never be kept that is categorized as poetry. It is the language of the possible in the realm of politics that is poetry. And then, Oh, once you're in office, it's all about what's possible. And that's true to a degree and you have to be able to get things done. But at the same time, Once you're in office, what if you say, wait a minute, I've noticed something about the country. We might not have to spend so much money on this massive (laughs) expenditure and we could put it somewhere else. Like, oh, I'm sorry, there's a homelessness crisis in the wealthiest and most technologically advanced country in the history of the world. Perhaps it's because we have a society have simply decided that we are okay with some people not having houses. And it's not because we can't solve this problem. There's people who can't get medical care. Maybe it's because we've decided as a society that we're okay with that for some reason, and not because we can't find a solution for it. In fact, when the country decides to find solutions for issues and think creatively and imaginatively, it's almost always managed to do it. Sometimes, for the better and sometimes for the worse. Like we figured out how to make atom bombs. We figured out how to build an entire arsenal to go fight World War II. Like the politics of the possible is there. It's like, it's not just what's possible. Oftentimes it's gone beyond that, but never uh, necessarily for, for, the, for the better all, all the time. Um, <laughs> But that's part of what I really respond to in a poem like this, which is just like, these grandmas are 
badass. Their cars are badass. And their cars, like, these grandmas have figured out how to make carbon-neutral cars. Like, there's a vein of Afrofuturism in this poem that I really love. Um, And I think also, like, particularly in the context that this poem is working in, so many pieces of art about, like, the Black experience in America that get made are, like, not in a bad way looking backwards, but part of, I think, when you have a film like Black Panther that comes along, part of it is like, yes, it's the first Black superhero, and that is incredible representation, a huge move forward, but it's also about imagining a place free of colonialism and imagining a different kind of future and reality and bringing that into the world. And I feel like that this poem also is doing that, where you've got these grandmas in, like, sure they're in corvettes jaguars and cadillacs but they're like the corvettes jaguars and cadillacs of the future these grandmas are filled up with the wisdom of the past they've got patty labelle and anita baker and Jimi hendrix and they can teach you about all of this great music that they had when they were kids and you venerate them because they're the elders of the community but also they're like building supercomputers and you know making cars that can run on the sun or you know whatever like it has that whole other level that it's it's working on and i feel like yeah poetry and culture can shape the future when they do this kind of work the star trek communicators from the 60s look like flip phones there's a reason for that it's because the designers who made flip phones were watching star trek when they were kids like (laughs) culture influences the world and when you put poems like this out there, you make a better future more possible. And I love it. Yeah, no, that's really well put. Yeah, one of the be- most beautiful things about this event that I I like didn't go to it, but I watched the like live stream is that it was like, like normally these events, it's like the politicians are like, going out and doing their little performy thing and they're like i have a declaration to make and you will all be happy about it and like all of the like processes that like went into this declaration are totally you know obfuscated you have no idea it's just like they appeared and they've declared something great will happen or something but like this event was like the organizers were leading the event and then they brought the guests on stage who were the city council people who were invited to join (laughs) and like they got them there and like they spoke about you know like what they were believing in but it was really interesting because a lot of them like obviously none of them had been for police abolition publicly before But a lot of them had, you know, either voted to like increase the police's budget or were for police reform, et cetera. Um, And it was really like you could see visibly how the activists had kind of like applied pressure in a loving way, but in a serious way to like, you will commit to end the Minneapolis Police Department. Um, And like, they you know like had this like 
they were like, this is a brave thing for them to do. Like, this is like pretty, no one's really made this commitment before. And like, they did like a, we love you chant to the city council people. But then they also were like, if you got beef with your city council people, like you have their numbers, like you got to call them up. You got to like talk to them. Da, 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 da. Yeah. And then like at the end, um, like I think she's the director of Black Visions Collective, which is one of the main uh, groups, um, Candace Montgomery. She brought Janata Petrus up to read the poem and she was kind of introducing the poet and just had said kind of like, this poem like actually had kind of informed some of the ways in which I was thinking about my work. And I was like, whoa, like that sort of, like a lot of times, like we talk about all the ways that all these things are connected, but I was like, right here in this event, we see the artists who are like imagining the future that we want in like affecting the organizers who are like doing the work to like put the pressure on the people in power to like get that in action. And then we're seeing the people in power, the city council people like responding to that pressure and showing up and committing to like something pretty radical and brave. And it was like, I don't know, it was incredible. Um, and just very moving. And it also happened to be Prince's birthday and Prince is the Minneapolis God and everyone was wearing purple. And there was also just like so much queer and trans love that was happening at the event. And I don't know, it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. And I know that part of it is of course that I'm living in Minneapolis and I have personal connections to what was happening, but it also was like no other political occasion that I had ever witnessed. And yeah, and we have this this poem to thank for it in part. And um, I'm just so like, I don't know. I just feel like so grateful for the poem and for the poet yeah if you hear this episode send some love yes to her send some love to her shall we hear again the poem that helped bring police abolition to the city of minneapolis (laughs) yes i think we absolutely shall this is could we please give the police departments to the grandmothers by janata petrus Give them the salaries and the pensions and the city vehicles, but make them a fleet of vintage Corvettes, Jaguars and Cadillacs with white leather interior. Diamond in the back, sunroof top and digging the scene with the gangster lean. Let the cars be badass. You would hear the old school jams like Patti LaBelle, Stevie Wonder, Anita Baker and Al Green. You would hear sweet honey in the rock harmonizing on we who believe in freedom will not rest, bumping out the speakers. And they got the booming system. If you up to mischief, they will pick you up swiftly in their sweet ride and look at you until you catch shame. 
and look down at your lap. She asks you if you are hungry and you say yes. And of course you are. She got a crown of dreadlocks and on the dashboard you see brown faces like yours, shea buttered and loved up. And there are no precincts, just love temples that got spaces to meditate and eat delicious food. Mangoes, blueberries, nectarines, cornbread, peas and rice, fried plantain, fufu, yams, greens, okra, pecan pie, salad, and lemonade. Things that make your mouth water and your soul arrive. All the hungry bellies know warmth. All the children expect love. The grandmas help you with homework practice yoga with you, and teach you how to make jambalaya and coconut cake from scratch. When you're sleepy, she will start humming and rub your back while you drift off. A song that she used to have the record of when she was your age. She remembers how it felt like to be you and be young and not know the world that good. Grandma is a sacred child herself who just circled the sun enough times into the ripeness of her cronehood. She wants your life to be sweeter. When you are wilding out because your heart is broke or you don't have what you need, the grandmas take your hand and lead you to their gardens. You can lay down amongst the flowers. Her grasses, roses, dahlias, irises, lilies, collards, kale, eggplants, blackberries. She wants you to know that you are safe and protected, universal, limitless, sacred, sensual, divine, and free. Grandma is the original warrior, wild since birth, comfortable in loving fiercely. She has fought so that you don't have to, not in the same ways at least. So give the police departments to the grandmas, they are fearless, classy, and actualized, blossomed from love. They wear what they want and say what they please. Believe that. There wouldn't be noise citations when the grandmas ride through our streets, blasting Stevie Wonder, Nina Simone, Marvin Gaye, Alice Coltrane, Jimi Hendrix, KRS-One, all that good music. The kids gonna hula hoop to it and sell her lemonade made from heirloom pink lemons and maple syrup. The car is solar powered and carbon footprintless. The grandmas design the technology themselves. At night, they park the cars in a circle so all can sit in them with the sunroofs down and look at the stars, talk about astrological signs, what to plant tomorrow based on the moon's mood and help you memorize Audre Lorde and James Baldwin quotes. She always looks you in the eye and acknowledges the light in you with no hesitation or fear. And grandma loves you fiercely forever. She sees the pain in our bravado, the confusion in our anger, the depth behind our coldness. Grandma knows what oppression has done to our souls 
and is going to change it one love temple at a time. She has no fear. abolition and other liberatory efforts, there has been a lot of action that has already taken place, planting the seeds for future change. But one thing is clear is that this is a long-term effort that will need continued support. And so in that vein, we would love if you would support either a local organization where you live that is doing this kind of work that is led by uh, black organizers or native organizers, or there are many organizations in Minneapolis that are doing great work and providing great support. One organization in particular that has not gotten a lot of love at the moment is the Young People's Action Coalition. And this is actually a group led by high school students in Minneapolis, and they are the main group actually that won the campaign to get the police out of Minneapolis schools, which is pretty incredible. And now they are continuing their struggle to make sure that there are genuine, supportive, alternative replacements now that the Minneapolis police will be gone so that there's more counselors, more staff of color, and just doing the work to make sure that systemic racism in Minneapolis schools is eradicated in the long run. We will have a link to their GoFundMe, and if you are able to donate any amount of money that would be so appreciated by us and I know the Young People's Action Coalition. As always, you can reach out to us on Twitter, on Instagram, uh, through our email, closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. Our Twitter handle is at close talking. I am at uh, Connor M. Stratton, and Jack is at Jack Rossiter Mutt. We would love any thoughts that you have about the poem, about our reading or our discussion, or just, you know, what's going on where you are with, you know, the movement for black lives or police justice. We would love to hear from you. Thanks so much.